The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. It's a star-studded turnout here at Bel Air Hotel, where family and famous friends, including Dick Clark, Pat Boone, and Danny Thomas, are gathered for the wedding of radio icon Casey Kasem and actress Jean Thompson. It's 1980 in Southern California. Radio icon Casey Kasem is now 47 years old. He's remarried to 26-year-old actress Jean Thompson after his first marriage ended in divorce. It was a very Doris Day, Frank Sinatra. I still pinch myself every day to see that... Everything about their love story seems straight out of a movie. But this romantic comedy will not have a Hollywood ending. I'm Martin Cove, and this is Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem, Episode 3, Gene. When Casey and Jean meet in 1980, it's love at first sight for both of them. It was, it was a very Hollywood meeting. I was working as a delivery boy for a commercial agency what? trying to break into show business. And I was making $300 a month. It was Christmas time. Casey came into the agency with an armload of gifts for everybody in the agency but me because I had just started working there. He was coming in as I was going out. Casey's close friend, Mike Kerb, says it was love at first sight. There's just no question that he fell in love with Jean. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody saw it. To Casey Kasem, how delighted I am to have this opportunity to share with you on this occasion. Casey asks the Reverend Jesse Jackson to officiate the wedding. I said, the man that I would like to marry is somebody who I think is the most important human being in America. He's Jesse Jackson. What do you think? She says, let's do it. So we spoke to Jesse from Chicago for about an hour and a half because he wanted to make sure it wasn't one of those Hollywood marriages that's last two weeks and then get a divorce. So he agreed. My wife and I are still married, love each other very much. The newlyweds are out of town often for film premieres and benefits. Gene, especially, is always a standout on the red carpet. She took risks, which was great. She wasn't conservative at all. Very sort of, like, ethereal. Celebrity fashion designer David Mason Klopecki says Gene Kasem certainly knew how to grab the limelight. Gene may not have invented the high ponytail, but she certainly brought it to the highest heights of glamour, certainly at her height. I really loved her because she was in that whole genre of Grace Jones and Brigitte Nielsen, and she was kind of the comedy version of them. Welcome to Larry King Live with guest host, Rona Barrett. Hi. Hi. I was wondering how um, Casey Kasem handles him and his, his wife wearing these you know, kind of sexy outfits and stuff, is, if it embarrasses him at all. Never has. I'm very proud of the way she dresses, and I, uh, despite what Mr. Blackwell says. <laughs> In an interview on CNN's Larry King Live, guest host Rona Barrett delves deeper. 
Gina, do you dress this way because you really want to gain attention or, or why? Um, you know, I really can't say. I just know that I was not good looking when I was a child. I was overweight. Um, I, in seventh or eighth grade, it broke my heart when I thought that in the yearbook they would call me the most studious, and my girlfriend uh, got that under her picture, and I was voted class clown. It broke my heart. I never got over it. Casey and Jean bond over their shared passion for advocacy work. While walking red carpets, Jean often turns the spotlight to issues she believes in, including rehabilitation for addicts instead of prison. Whether it be cigarettes or alcohol or an illegal substance or a prescription substance, these people desperately need help. Locking them up in federal pens is not the answer. Jean's Hollywood fame is a far cry from her humble beginnings. Jean Thompson is born in 1955 in the eastern seacoast of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a small but picturesque town. In her teenage years, Jean's father moves the family to Guam, where he works as a civil servant in military supply operations. Advisors were being sent to South Vietnam to bring our forces there to 21,000. Now this number will be increased even further. At sea, on land, and in the air. When Jean is 16, the Vietnam War hits devastatingly close to home. Marianne Norbaum interviewed Jean in 1987 for a profile in People magazine. Jean told her she volunteered at a Navy hospital in Guam, something Jean's family members cannot confirm. And she remembered very clearly, and this was a lot of years later, she remembered very clearly the, the uh, terrible injuries that she was seeing coming into the hospital. And she remembered things like surgeries being done in hallways and all the burials and very clear to her memory were the repeated sounds of 21 gun salutes as soldier after a military service person was being buried. So it, it made quite an impact on her. In spite of her traumatic surroundings, Jean excels academically. Jean started University of Guam at 16, fully intended to get her college degree, but a year later she married a Navy man. And um, they traveled all over the, the world, posting to posting. And the marriage only lasted about five or six years. After her divorce, Jean moves to California to pursue a career as a local TV newscaster. But it doesn't turn out as she'd hoped. She recalls it was at a time when the news was getting a little bit more show busy, a little bit smoother, and she was interested in doing hard news. And they just thought she came across as too serious and too brainy. After Jean meets Casey, he encourages her to go into acting. In 1984, she lands a small role on an episode of the mega-hit show Cheers on NBC. She plays Loretta, the ditzy blonde trophy wife of Carla's ex-husband, Nick Tortelli. There's a kernel of truth in what Nicky's saying. You've extended my metaphor. <laughs> oh, Nicky, I didn't mean to. Loretta becomes a reoccurring fan favorite, and in 1987, the Cheers creators develop a spin-off for her and Nick called the Tortellis, 
starring Gene and actor Dan Hatea. What's so really funny about this is that I have an, an Arabic husband in real life and I have a Jewish husband on the show. Producer Ken Esten, who worked on Cheers and the Tortellis, said in an email, Gene always was diligent and cooperative and seemed to be a happy, pleasant person. That is all I know about her. America comes to know Gene as a hilarious bimbo, the 1980s version of a Marilyn Monroe character. But reporter Marianne Norbaum found that the real Gene was just the opposite. The first thing that struck me was her voice. If you remember her from her TV days, she spoke in a very high octave and just, you know, all over the place with the dumb blonde. And the Gene Case whom I met she spoke an octave lower, was very articulate, spoke in complete sentences. This was, this was clearly a, a, a bright woman. The reporter met Casey and Jean in their seventh year of marriage. She says she's conducted hundreds of celebrity interviews, and this couple was the real deal. They seemed very much in love, very much in sync, and he seemed to be extremely proud of her. I mean, I remember him sitting there just smiling, and you could, you could see the pride in his face. And he, he made a point of letting me know, so I could let the magazine readers know, that he did not help her get this job. He gave her career guidance. He gave her career encouragement, but he never picked up the phone to a producer and said, hire my wife. In 1990, after years of thinking she couldn't have a child, Jean gives birth to a daughter named Liberty, who she calls her miracle baby. With the new addition, Casey is now a father to three girls and a boy, including his children from his previous marriage to Linda. He had an abounding love for his, his three kids. I mean, abounding love. Casey's close friend, Mike Kerb. It was very painful for him over the time because obviously Gene didn't have the same feelings for the kids that Linda did. So the kids sometimes were a nuisance to her. And as time went on, she didn't even want the kids to come over. For years, Casey quietly struggles to balance the love for his three eldest children and his new life with Gene. To make matters more complicated, Gene's show, The Tortellis, is canceled after 13 episodes, and she never gets another starring role. So in the mid-1990s, Gene pivots from acting to business. She starts Little Miss Liberty, a company specializing in round cribs, named for her daughter. It was part of that whole 90s like genre of Dionne Warwick's psychic friends. David Mason Klopecki says the business was very much of its time. Later on, you had shares, hair care products, all things they advertised on TV, which were sort of lowbrow, but apparently making quite a bit of money. Walter Mercado, you know, they were all cashing in at that moment. By the early 2000s, Gene's business is up and running. Today, business associates and customers are speaking publicly for the first time about what was really going on at Little Miss Liberty. Yesenia Rivera, 
was the company's receptionist and Jean's personal assistant. The first year, it was great. It was a great bonding. But then after that following year, I started noticing little things that wouldn't really seem good. Around 2008, the company takes a turn for the worse. At this point, Casey's over a year into his disease. The Homeby Hills mansion is far from the happy home where he and Jean got married more than 25 years earlier. The mansion's garage becomes the new base of operations after Jean gives up her office space in Beverly Hills. It was terrible. Karen Soliday is hired as Little Miss Liberty's wholesale manager. On her first day, Karen's impressed. She's greeted at the mansion's front door by radio icon Casey Kasem. But a red flag goes off right away. When you first start a job, you, you always you want to give the benefit of the doubt to people because you just accepted a job and, you know, it's your money. And so you don't want to, you know, this is Casey Kasem, you know, like famous. And so, but why are we in a garage? With a background in managing accounts at Wells Fargo, Karen is well-versed in running the financial side of a business. She spends most of her days at Little Miss Liberty, reorganizing the company. When I started fielding calls from customers is when I really started going, this is a mess. And I'm basically not going to be doing the job that I was hired for because there is no wholesale going on. I'm going to be fixing all of the myriad of customer service issues and wrong things and customer complaints that were non-stop, never-ending. Little Miss Liberty has one big account, a children's furniture store owned by a woman we're calling Pat to protect her privacy. Pat quickly learns the company has quality control issues. As far as quality goes, there were a lot of problems. And at one point, there were some defects. And I told Jean about this. Jean knew about this and continued to, to produce these cribs knowing there were defects in them. I stopped purchasing them for that reason. And we had, you know, quite, we had a disagreement about this once because I was not willing to buy any more of those cribs until I knew 100% that children were not at risk. At one point, when I was calling about this issue, you know, I would call to talk to Jean, and, you know, Jean wasn't available. They would say, Jean is not available, and I would speak to this very strange woman who had some very odd accent from, like, like a southern accent that I had never heard of before. It turned out that I spoke to about four or five different people when I called there, and it turned out that all of those personalities were Jean. Jean was pretending to be each and every one of those personalities. So um, when I spoke to the person who handles my account, I said, you know, who are all these strange people and when did Jean hire them? And she said, Jean didn't hire anybody. That was Jean. Jean's assistant, Yusinia, says she witnessed financial issues at the company firsthand. One day, she overhears a frantic conversation between Jean and her bookkeeper. 
She would go in there and tell her, you need to call Casey. You need to tell him that we need money. There's no money. And I don't know how are you going to do it, but just lie to him. Tell him that this is going on and I don't have any money to pay the employees. On another day, Yesenia and her sister Lupita say they saw Casey's bookkeeper, Steve, informing his boss that the company has made a large, unauthorized money transfer from his account. Lupita speaks first. So Steve and Gene had got into a prior argument. So Steve was really mad at Gene. So Steve went into Mr. Casey's bedroom and informed him about if he knew if he was aware that Gene was doing large amounts of transferring of transfer monies. And Mr. Casey didn't know. So Mr. Casey walked into the office and confronted Gene and asked her, are you transferring $10,000 from my account to your account? And Gene said, no. And at that moment, Mr. Casey looks at Steve and Steve says, here's the paper. Here's the transfer. And it was signed by her. And that's when Jean got up and she started screaming and started going at it at Steve and Casey. And uh, she said, no, they're lying. And in that moment, she started hollering. Mr. Casey really didn't react on screaming or anything. All he did, we just saw him that he just fell. He just fainted. And we had to call, of course, 911 because we didn't know what was going on. He actually fainted. Like, he started falling down. We seen him. He started falling down, falling down. So we grabbed him, but he totally fainted. And then she yelled, call 911, and 911 came. They got Mr. Casey. They put him on a gurney, and she yelled, literally yelled at us. Nobody comes into this house. We were instructed not to call none of the kids, not to inform the media, because the first thing she would say, if anybody calls, you guys don't say anything. Just tell them that you don't know. No media, nothing, and no one. Casey's right-hand man, Gonzalo Venezia, catches the tail end of the chaos as he arrives at the Kasem house. This is Gons, reading from his notes from that day. I believe this caught her off guard when I arrived at work. She was concerned and said not to tell anyone for his benefit. I just said, okay, but, you know, I I struggled withholding this information from the kids for a few hours that he was in the hospital. And I didn't appreciate being put in this situation. If something happened to Casey, for example, if he could no longer communicate or worse, if he died, how would I feel if I kept that info? from his kids and they never saw him alive again that's not right so I let them know Gons began his career as a production assistant to his idol Casey Kasem then over several decades, became Casey's personal assistant and close confidant. Gons is even tasked with the overseeing of his boss's banking records. During one conversation, Gons says Casey asked him for a favor. I remember one time we were talking in the audiovisual room in his office, and I was telling him something about that Gene had forged his checks several times. And so he listened intently, and... He just said, you know, I want you to basically keep an eye for me, an eye out for me. 
you know, you are my ears and eyes when I'm not around and I just need you to protect me. And I tried doing that as best I could. Unbeknownst to Jean, sisters Lupita and Yusenia are also keeping watchful eyes on Casey and his surroundings and relaying that information to gods. It was in the morning, uh, I would say around roughly 10 or 11. In 2011, Lupita says she witnessed Casey signing paperwork, granting Jean power of attorney. A gentleman came to the house, and Jean had me go and open the door, the main door from the house to the gentleman, escort him inside the house, and I walked him into Mr. Casey's room. And Jean had me stand right there next to her, and the gentleman, and Mr. Casey was in the bed, and she asked Casey to sign those documents. Mr. Casey asked him what was it, and she's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm taking care of you. I'm the only one that cares for you. I need you to sign. And that's when the gentleman proceeded to give the documents to Gene, and Mr. Casey started signing them. He didn't even know what he was signing. He wasn't there 100%. He was there about 85%. Gene already had removed every medication that Mr. Casey had been given by the doctors. At this point, Casey is in severe decline and needs help around the clock. Lupita and Yusenia claim they saw Jean and Liberty verbally abusing Casey, especially when it involves seeing his oldest children. The yelling at him, like he was nobody at the house. The first experience that I witnessed, I was at the office and I heard somebody yelling. I was like, that sounds like liberty. So I walked towards the hallway of the part of the house, towards Casey's office, and I peeked into Casey's office and I saw liberty almost over his desk, like literally yelling at him, telling him, don't you understand how many times has mom said not to speak to Julie? Julie does not have any authority to come into the house. I, we don't want you talking to them. All they're doing is taking your money. They want your money. Do you understand that? Like, but yelling, like really yelling at him. And all he did was always say, please, can you please hold on and we'll talk about it after I'm done on the phone. And they would say, no, you better hang up that call right now because if not, I'm going to hang that call. One of his caretakers, Rosa Palacios, is with him for two and a half years, up until a year before his death. When I'm coming, I open always my arms to, to, to see him, and he was waiting for me with his big and beautiful smile. Yeah, 24 hours, five days a week. I was cooking for him, washing his clothes, sleeping with him when he started shaking so I just put my hand on his chest and he's still going to sleep so we were very very close believe me I love him so much Rosa lies next to Casey at night helping him get to sleep so where does that leave Jean? she was she was sleeping in, in her room. Yeah, sometimes she didn't come in two days to visit him. And she was sleeping in the other room. She was in the other room uh, close to us. 
Rosa has haunting memories of Gene and Liberty waking Casey up in the middle of the night to force feed him. When they come in to try to force him to eat, he ate already. He's sleeping because because he don't he don't want to eat the their food. Rosa says they forced Casey to eat foods he swore off as a vegan. Sometimes they do eggs and he don't like eggs and he closed his mouth. That believe me, make me cry and still make me cry. Still make me cry because he he has uh, you you don't know how this guy looking me. Rosa isn't the only one who says she witnessed the force feeding. Tony DeLeon begins working as Jean's assistant and driver in 1997 and stays with the family for over a decade. He speaks to us through a translator. These memories make me emotional. Thanksgiving I really remember very much. I gave food to him and Jean was almost, you know, forcing him to eat the food. Tony also says he saw Jean place food in front of Casey and walk away. She just left the food there and said, you have to eat it, you have to eat it, and just left the food there. I'm very emotional right now. It was not good seeing it. Rosa says Jean would leave Casey alone at their Malibu condo with her, promising to return at the end of the workday. But then, she'd never come back. When I was in Malibu, sometimes I have to I have to go home, and she disappeared, and and she appeared next day. Rosa and Casey are left overnight at the condo without food, so Rosa has to buy their food with her own money. He was, but he was, he was lucky too at the same time, because I'm thanking him with with me to buy to the store to buy things to eat. Sometimes we don't have nothing to eat, and 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 I was taking to to Subway to to buy to buy a sandwich for him. As Casey's health continues to decline, so does Little Miss Liberty's crib company. Casey's right-hand man, Gons, again reading from his notes. Every time Casey made a transfer to Little Miss Liberty, he would keep a tally of it in his check ledger that he kept locked in the safe in his office. By the time my job ended in 2010, the total neared $10 million. As the business fails, Little Miss Liberty's staff, who are serving as surrogate caretakers for Casey, are either fired or they quit. I felt horrible. Yasinia leaves in 2010. Casey does not deserve this. He was a great man. He didn't deserve what what happened to him. Yasinia's sister, Lupita, leaves one year later. I was being so stressed out. I was the one taking care of her whole house, the moving, the lying to the customers of the cribs that were breaking down. Sometimes I wouldn't even see my son because I will show up to work at 7 in the morning and I will go home until 2 in the morning. 
I will still have nightmares after I left from working with Jean Kasem because of everything she had us do. She don't have no morals. She shot, she, she raised Liberty to be exactly as her spitting image. And I felt bad for Liberty. I regret a lot. I regret not calling Mr. Casey's kids and not telling them, you guys need to come and get them out now. I regret a lot. Karen, Jean's office manager, works for Little Miss Liberty for three years. But she says when she put in a request for vacation, Jean fired her. I filed a lawsuit on her with the Labor Board of the State of California, and I got, I got my money. And, but I had to get it because she wouldn't pay it. I won that case, and she was supposed to pay me about $8,000, and she never did. After two years, I never got a cent. So I took matters into my own hands and filed a, a suit on her and filed a couple of liens on her property, and I got my money within two weeks of me writing a very pointed letter. Casey's devoted caretaker, Rosa, finally leaves when Jean refuses to let her park her new car, a gift from her son, on the Homeby Hills property. Rosa had been parking her old car on the extraordinarily long driveway for years. But Casey's most devastating loss comes when Jean fires his right-hand man and most trusted confidant, Gans. He reads again from his notes. I was let go in 2010. And for a few years, Casey would say that Jean wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. He said she was afraid I'd go to the tabloids to share what went on in the house. Somehow, Casey was able to keep Jean at bay, and I never signed the papers. Eventually, he gave me a copy of the agreement, but I said I wouldn't sign it. Casey didn't want to lose me, so he let it pass. But in March 2010, when his constitution was much weaker. He told me that Gene said if I don't sign the non-disclosure agreement, that I have to stop working for him. I didn't trust Gene, so I refused. And that was that. Four hours later, my 24-year career working with Casey Kasem ended abruptly. She had been trying to get rid of me for years, and I had been told by some of her workers that the reason she wanted to get rid of me is so she could have full control of his finances with no oversight. The last employee standing is Tony. But there's another man who always seems to be around as Casey's health is in decline. Many of Little Miss Liberty's employees see him coming and going, but aren't sure what he's doing at the home. Jean refers to him with changing titles, ranging from business manager to lawyer. His name is John Paul Gressy. The investigation that I did into Jean Paul, as he likes to be called, he was always hustling private investigator Logan Clark. He had been hustling business deals in Canada where his father has a jean company. And he took that to San Francisco and hustled there. 
Jean was pouring a lot of money into Jean-Paul's little escapades, but it was obviously Casey's money. It wasn't her money. And the figure that I heard during the investigation was about a million dollars. Tony, Jean's right-hand man, says John Paul drove Casey's Mercedes and stayed in the Holmby Hills house when Casey was sick. Rosa, the caretaker, would watch over Casey all night while Jean slept in another bedroom down the hall. Tony saw Jean and John Paul in the bedroom together. I'd see them arrive at night, then they both slept in the same bedroom. He'd leave early in the morning. Mr. Kasem slept by himself in another room. Investigator Logan Clark discovers that when John Paul isn't staying at the main mansion, he's staying at the Kasem's Malibu condo, rent-free. John Paul, I believe, felt he hit the jackpot when he met Gene. He got Casey Kasem's condo in Malibu. He got Casey's Mercedes-Benz. He got Casey's money. What's not to love? John Paul doesn't just inch his way into the homes. He also starts controlling operations, including firing Tony after 16 years of service. Tony believes he was fired because he knew too much. Me and the old staff knew everything that happened around the house. The boyfriend wanted new people. But John Paul's role in the Kasem family feud ultimately becomes much bigger. He ends up being an instrumental figure in Casey's medical care, or lack thereof. John Paul was a hustler most of his life. And when he realized how much money Casey actually had, he latched on to Gene like never let go. He had hit the big time. Our team of producers reached out repeatedly to Gene and Liberty Kasem to participate in this story. A lawyer for Gene told us this isn't a good time for Gene to speak. Liberty did not respond to our requests. We reached out to Gene's family members. Only one responded. He said he was too afraid of Gene to speak publicly. We also reached out to producers and castmates of Gene, but they were either unwilling to talk or did not respond. Over the years, Gene has denied any allegations of abuse. In 2018, she told 48 Hours about her feelings for Casey. I love that man so much, I would have died 